Hi, I'm Sean Horn, founder and CEO of BeBell.ie. So what is BeBell? Well, it's a place of positivity. It's a place where you can be happy, be kind, be bold, feel supported and encouraged to fulfill your dreams. So join us on social at BeBell.ie for future events and upcoming podcasts. Hello and welcome to Be Bad Podcast with myself, Sean Horn. I hope you enjoyed episode one. Today, I'm going to be joined by the fabulous Marie Barry Murphy. It's it's a sad story, but also has a great ending. Um, a story of huge resilience, a story that will resonate with a lot of people. Um, and yeah, and I just really wanted to thank her for sharing this personal story with us. So I hope you enjoy. And don't forget, if you do, please follow and leave a review. So today I would love to introduce the fabulous Marie Barry Murphy. How are you? Hello. How are you, Shan? I'm fine. We were just talking before we came on air about how fabulous you look. <laughs> I got carried away with the makeup. I haven't worn it in so long because we've been in hiding for a year. <laughs> no, but and isn't it funny that it is actually, it's, well, it's a year next weekend. Um, it, it's bizarre. I was actually sharing uh, this week, this weekend last year, I was in Spain and I remember us wearing masks over on the plane, but we didn't really know why we were. There was one case in Cork at the time, but no one really knew what it was about. Um and yeah, God, did we not know what was coming? Oh, it's been a whirlwind. Absolutely. Crazy times. Crazy yeah, times. Yeah, it's really mad. So, um, but do you know what? We're resilient and, and we've got through it. And I think it's given people a lot of time to really think about themselves, think about what they really want from life. Um, and with that in mind, we're going to talk about your life. So let's start at the beginning. Where did it all begin? Where were you born? So I was born in Kilwart in County Cork. But I suppose I've actually lived a few places. <laughs> um, a lot of people probably don't know. But um, yeah, I started in Glenmort in Ballyhooley, Glenmort Road, Ballyhooley. And then we actually moved for a while down to Tralee because my mother's originally from County Kerry. Okay. So I lived for a bit down there and went to school. I I don't even remember how long it was. It might have been a year or so because I think we were looking for another home at the time. Um, and then we moved to Kilwart. Okay. And I suppose that's the only place I would have really called home. Yes. And how old were you when you moved to Kilworth? Um, I'd say I was about seven, six or seven. Yeah. yeah. That's an important time for us, isn't it? I know, I know I moved to London when I was six or seven. And and that's my I would call my first time Richmond because I that's, you know, my, my fondest memory, I suppose, there. Do you have siblings? I do. I have an older brother um, and I have two younger sisters. Oh, amazing. OK, so the older sister, do you, are you the mammy for them or? <laughs> I probably am in a way. Yeah, yeah. We we've had, I suppose, a, a turbulent childhood, and I like every family. No family is perfect. Yeah. Um, 
so like I wouldn't speak to my eldest brother okay. um, and then I have a sister younger than me um, Bernie and we'd have a fairly good relationship and then the youngest sister Deirdre I wouldn't really have a great relationship with her either she they like I suppose we all have our own issues but yes um, she'd be fairly troubled and so you moved there when you were seven as you were growing up with your siblings were you all close then we were yeah I think we kind of all looked out for each other and minded each other I suppose we had to because in in the the household that we grew up in there would have been a lot of you know dysfunction and there would have been a bit of domestic violence as well okay yeah and how did you all deal with that I suppose we all de dealt with it in our own different ways um I suppose I, I as you said like I was kind of the memmy and I tried to look after everyone and make sure everyone was okay and and like you would presume or you would think that the eldest would have taken the lead and and kind of sheltered us but it was me that took yeah. that kind of that role and I suppose like I was a child it, it shouldn't have been a role I should have taken but I did yeah um like for instance I can remember one memory of there being a fight between my mother and father and we must have been all very little we were still all in primary school I'm sure and there was a big kerfuffle in the kitchen and there were screaming and shouting and we were all hiding in the bedroom in behind one of the the beds and I was like to my eldest brother I was like you got to go down you got to sort this you know like we were all scared and crying and he was like no 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 just leave him just leave him and I was like no I've got this right up I went and down I went and I was there like get away from my mommy and you yeah. know if you don't I'm going to ring the guards and things like that and he actually he he physically hurted her that night he assaulted her that night so I remember running up to the end of the hallway and I grabbed the phone and I hopped into it was like a little cupboard straight across from the phone and I hopped in closed the doors and I rang the guards and the guards came out actually um and I'll never forget the one thing they said was if you don't stop the fighting that your children will be taken away and I was like oh and as a child does that make you think I won't ring again what does that it did I was like oh my god have I done the wrong thing but yeah. I suppose I, I deep down I knew that this wasn't right either no absolutely and the thing is when it comes to protecting others you know I know you mentioned you know you'd sometimes expect the oldest to take but that's actually a personality trait and not an age trait so I think it's something that's instilled in you to nurture um as a woman anyway um but yeah so that was a difficult role you took so how did you get on at school I suppose I wouldn't well my husband always gives out to me for saying this but I wasn't the smartest person in the camp <laughs> like you know I suppose we all have our strengths and weaknesses and you know I loved art I loved English I loved telling stories um I loved people of talking with people or you know, kind of being the agony aunt or, you know, minding people and things like that. Um, but again, like there, there's, a, I always have a little story to tell about certain yeah. things. So <laughs> like my brother was a year older and I remember when we had first moved to Kilworth and we had gone into the school 
and I suppose we we were only there a couple of weeks and kind of settling and finding our feet. But the I went into we say high infants and he was in first class. So there was interconnecting doors. It was a really old kind of fashioned school, like even the toilets were outside, but there was interconnecting doors. And I hadn't done very well with my reading when the teacher had asked me to read something. And was it in Irish or what it was, something like that. Um, so she went in next door and she pulled my brother out and she said, I will give you, I don't know, was it like a pound or something? If you can help your sister with her reading, because she's terrible in front of the whole class. And I was like, God, I was so ashamed. Like, and all these little things affect you throughout your life. Absolutely. And I was like, oh, here we go again, another bit of, you know, like they're little nuggets of trauma, little, yeah. you know, things that chip away at you. Absolutely. And and things like, you know, I always say to people, I know if I watch, watch friends or something you know with young children they're like oh don't do that because and I'm like you, you can't say that because she'll remember that yeah I remember you know I, I, I remember lots of things about my childhood but things that stick out and never the good you know all the good stuff it, it's the things that people said to you um, and that you have to work on but um, was school an escape for you from what was going on at home it was definitely I like I'm one of the weird people who go, I loved school. <laughs> I loved it too. Nothing was, no, nothing was going on at home, but I did love it. I loved it. But I, I, I the social side of it, not the education. Yeah. Exactly. Me too. Like when they say, oh, school days are the best days of your life. I was like, no, they are. They really are. Yeah. <laughs> like I loved seeing my friends. And like you said, it, it was kind of a, an escape for me, I suppose. Yeah, I really enjoyed school. And obviously you were a resilient child, you know, um, you learned that early on. How did that, I suppose, how did that take you through your childhood? Like what happened next? Um, well, I suppose my parents' marriage wasn't a great marriage. And, yeah. you know, there was always arguments and it was always over something ridiculous. Like what's the worst thing? Money. Yeah. <laughs> so many people fight over that um like now looking back I think they should never have been married but I suppose the good of it was I'm here <laughs> so yeah. you know I'll take a positive um but yeah they, they they shouldn't um I'm actually losing my train of thought now what was the question again <laughs> how did that how did you progress through your younger years um well I suppose from from them having a turbulent relationship it kind of always made me think that I never wanted that yeah. I would strive in life to to find something solid and something I suppose there's nothing permanent but something you know good and protective and you know all the things I didn't have yes yeah um I suppose I was used to the knocks and I was used to to just getting back up again. And I just, no matter what happened, I always thought, oh, it's just another thing. Here we go again. It was something I, I got used to. So but, you started to use that internal voice as to accept it? Yeah. Even though I suppose, you know, it was very wrong. All of it was very wrong. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, it was something I was used to and I thought, 
this is what everybody's family life is like. I've done a lot of work like in therapy with all this, but yeah, yeah. I suppose as a child and you grow up, you just become accustomed to it and you're used to it and you just think that's it. This this is my lot kind of. So as you got older and obviously you would have moved schools as you got older, like how does that affect your relationships with other people? I suppose the relationships that you were watching. Um, I suppose I would have looked at other people like if I went to visit friends or stay a night at a sleepover or something, I'd, I'd be like in awe of other people's family life and you know the relationship between their mums and dads and like oh craving why couldn't I have that why couldn't we have that yeah and I suppose I, I felt a loss around all of that even as a child yeah but which is completely understandable mm-hmm. um but only by having the knowledge that other people's lives were different I suppose at what age did you realize that because I suppose when you're younger, you think everybody's the same. Yeah, I suppose it was maybe 12, 13, kind of when I started first year. Yeah, I, I had a real good realisation of, no. I suppose, well, I always deep down knew that I always had a sense of right from wrong. Yeah. But I suppose between the ages of 12, maybe 13, and going into secondary school, I really knew that, yeah. We're, we're a bit different. Our family's a bit different. Yeah. And my mum suffered with mental illness as well. So, yeah, there were tough times. Yeah. And how do you think that you got through it then? Like, can you do you have memories of, of you know, obviously we're talking, you know, 7 to 12, you're dealing with that. You have a realisation that your family is different to other people. So how do you deal with that? How do you move forward? How do you progress knowing that you don't want that to be for yourself um well I suppose for me there wasn't a progression okay which is is kind of sad I always hoped there would have been like I always thought oh you know I wanted to be a a fashion designer or I wanted to be an artist or but I, I was never encouraged I was never helped um with my schooling with my education I never went to to college um, my eldest brother did, um, but my mother and father left school very, very early in primary school, both of them. So I suppose, you know, they didn't have it in them either, you know, to give us the tools that we needed to to move on and, you know, grow and, you know, be well-educated and, you know, have that kind of drive. Um, and I suppose I kind of ended up kind of looking after my mother as such, you know, being her kind of almost surrogate spouse or her her best friend, her confidant, you know, her therapist nearly. Um, and I was probably afraid that if I left her there, she'd be all alone because I think she was a very lonely woman. And until what age did you did you do that for her? Oh, I suppose I've done it all my life, in a way. I suppose, when did you leave the family home? When did you? They split up, actually. Um, okay. It was actually the year that, um, when I was 16, about 16, I was supposed to always had, as I said, a turbulent relationship, but they yes. split up um, properly. And she moved back down to Tralee um, 
oh, I'm not sure the year now, but I was 16, I remember. And it was actually the year I was raped. Okay. So it's like a double whammy there. <laughs> yeah. And it was, was it before that or that experience happened to you or was it after? It was after. Okay. Yeah. So did you, obviously, I don't know if you want to go into that story. That's completely up to you. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you want to tell us about it, you can. I know you've spoken about it freely on other platforms, but it's completely up to you what you speak about here. Yeah. Um, at 16, that's an awful lot to handle. Yes. Um, did you feel like you had the support? No. No, absolutely not. Um, which, oh, I actually, when I think about it, like, and I've journaled on it and I've spoken to about it in therapy and when I hear myself say it I'm like who 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 was that person who had who, you know god did she go through all that and she's still here she's still standing I'm like it, it's like I'm reading a story or I'm listening to something about somebody else yeah yeah to say the word out loud and to hear it from your own voice mm. It is difficult, I'm sure, every time. Yeah. But even more difficult when you're 16. Yeah, because I never had any help around it. I never had counselling. I never had support. It, it was like it wasn't talked about. It wasn't spoken about. It wasn't dealt with. And why do you think it wasn't spoken about? Um, well, I suppose it took me a few weeks, actually, before I, I, I confessed to my mom that, you know, what had happened yes because I suppose as a 16 year old I was like oh I'm going to town now I can't tell her I'm meeting a boy and you know uh, I'm meeting my friend in town and we're just hanging out and I suppose I kind of felt the kind of a bit of guilt yeah like god did I bring this on myself um and I know no obviously you know it was going to happen no matter what um but I felt that that guilt um but I just, I couldn't handle it anymore. And I couldn't go into school every day. And he was actually a classmate. Okay. So I was still going into school, seeing this person. And I just couldn't handle it. And I said it and I told her what happened. And she was, she was shocked. Now, you know, she, she did have empathy for me and you know, making sure I was okay. She said, like, I knew there was something wrong. You aren't eating, you, you know, you were angry. She just said, I knew there was something wrong. And and I, I remember saying, don't tell daddy, don't tell daddy. Cause I was afraid I was gonna get into trouble. Yeah. But obviously like a wife is gonna tell her husband that his daughter has been raped. And I can remember hearing her telling him one night. Cause I was like, hiding in the bathroom, listening at the door, you know, when you could hear your parents having conversations that you're not supposed to be listening in on. And I couldn't hear his reaction, but I know she told him. But it was like, from then on, it was never spoken about. And like, I was never brought to a doctor. Like I was a virgin. I was never brought to a doctor. I was never brought for counseling, any kind of help. But I remember my, like, I don't know when this happened, but I said to my mother, are you going to do anything about it? 
because like I thought she like she'd be into the school and they'd be going to the guards or you know there'd be uproar or and I was like just just nothing happening like why aren't they trying to do something for me um so I I said it to my mom I said aren't you going to do anything about it I said like this is huge and she went in actually to town and she confronted him okay um he used to work part-time in a shop in town and she confronted him and, and when she came out she said to me that she had said it to him and she said you know what you did is wrong you raped my daughter and what have you got to say for yourself um, when she when she said what he said, I was like, oh my god. She said that he said, "What would you like me to do? Would you like me to buy her a box of chocolates?" <laughs> even to this day, when I when I say it or even think it, it's like, oh my god. You know, like oh, a box of chocolates, and that's it. And what at that time? What did you want to happen? I suppose I, I, obviously maybe I thought that, you know, the guards would have been involved and they would have taken statements or whatever, but maybe I suppose it didn't happen because maybe I wasn't ready at that time. Okay. That's what I think now. Um, and I know looking back, like my mother and her mental health was never, ever the best. And she never had support from my father either. So I don't think she was able to properly deal with it. And I think, and I know that my father always swept things under the carpet. And it was like, we won't talk about it. So then it doesn't exist. And although you knew your dad knew because you overheard the conversation, did he ever let you know that he know, knew? No, never. And like there was cry for help after cry for help. Like when I think back on it, it it's, it's, it's crazy. But um, like, I remember I slit my wrists at one time. Um, another cry for help. And, like, my parents had split now. So I was at home with my dad. My brother was in college and my two younger sisters were with my mom in Trilly. So I was the only one at home. Um, and I suppose he didn't really cop that kind of thing, which is fair enough. Then I lost a pile of weight. I wasn't eating. So I suppose I was kind of anorexic for maybe about two years. I say, I, like, I'm only 5'2". My weight dropped to nearly five and a half stone. Like, I was emaciated. And he never once asked why. Never. Nothing. Um, and then, I suppose, when I was around 20, 2021, 20, thereabouts, I, I just... I suppose because it was all being repressed and I, I was just, I wasn't working. I didn't leave my home to do anything other than to go to my local town. Okay. I wasn't working. I wasn't going to college. The only thing I was doing was hiding at home. Um, I suppose, and, and that was like that for about three or four years while everybody was moving on. And having a life, my life had stopped. <sighs> Sorry. No, it's 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 powerful to see where you are now and to be able to speak about it and allow yourself to be emotional about it because it 
completely right that you should be. What what was the turning point? What was the point where you realized that your life had stopped and there was that block? What happened? How did you get out of that? I suppose when I ended up in hospital, when I had taken the overdose. Okay. And I remember sitting in the hospital bed and I was connected up to the heart machine and I had to drink, you know, the jugs of charcoal to kind of clean me out and that. And I was like, oh my God, is, is this what it has come to? And still my dad sat beside me till the early hours of the morning and he still hadn't asked me why. And I was like, okay, nobody cares about me. Nobody's going to help me. So I need to help myself. Did you, did you ever, do you ever look back and think this, this man was there sitting there in the early hours of the morning. I'm lying there thinking no one cares about me. He obviously cares because he's there. But there's something in him that can't show you. Yeah, it's it's like he's emotionally in, inept. Yeah. He cannot, like, I've never heard my father say he loved me. Like, it's like, and I know he's my father, but it's like the man has no heart. He's there in spirit. Yes, or he's scared to show it. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I have slipped my wrists. I've taken an overdose. I've been anorexic. I've been to the depths of despair and back. And he still can't open his mouth or, or hug me or show any kind of emotion whatsoever. And I suppose that then was another blow. Do you still see that as a reflection on yourself? Or do you know that that's a reflection of him? Oh, no, I know it's him. Good. Okay. But I, I did see it, you know, <laughs> as something that maybe it's something in me that wasn't lovable for, for a while. Yeah. And I was still young at that stage. Like, I was well, only... I mean, it doesn't matter what age we are either. You know, when it comes to our parents, we're always ba babies, aren't we? You know? Yeah. You want them to mind you and love you and protect you and be able to go to them and cry and... So with that realisation that day when you're in the hospital and you're like, I have to do and I have to take control of this, what did you do? Well, I suppose the following morning, because I had stated they kept me in overnight and I remember there was such a lovely nurse there and she was just telling me to breathe in, in through your nose and out through your mouth. And I kept doing that because I was feeling so nauseous. And then she said... Um, you know, there's help if you need it. And she said, there's, um, I know that like a psychiatrist or something in the hospital, yeah. some person who could talk to you if you wanted to. And I said, no, I said, I'm fine. Obviously I wasn't fine. Um, but I kind of, I, I suppose I didn't trust people. And I was like, no, I'm not gonna hand me over to anybody else anymore. And I'm not, not going to be here anymore because of somebody else and I deserve this life more than you know more than him I wasn't going to let him have power over my life anymore and so what actions did you take 
Uh, I suppose I kind of started to push myself, yeah. um, you know, to try and get out or, and maybe to get a bit of part-time work or to, you know, go further to my local town and, you know, I suppose to, to try and meet somebody or, and even doing things like that was so difficult, but I did. Um, and, you know, I went on to, to meet a guy and I had my first child, my first son, Adam, he's now 21. Um, and well, you know, things happen. That relationship didn't work out, but I still had an amazing kid at the end of the day um, that I absolutely adore. And then I was working part-time and supporting my Beba. Um, and I said, you know, I, I can do things on my own. I might be a single mom, but you know, I'm getting there. Um, and I, I needed to be there for him as well. So then I met Michal, my husband now, and I went on to have three more kids. So I have four altogether. How did you meet Michal? <laughs> I always, this is a good one. I always tell the kids this because they always ask, they always ask us. And I said, oh, I got daddy off the paper. And they're like, mom, will you just tell us? How did you meet him? Where did you meet him? And I said, no, 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 I did. I got him off the paper, but I actually did. You know, those um, pink pages in the echo. Uh, he had an ad up <laughs> looking to meet somebody. And I replied and there was three ladies who left messages. And he said, out of the three, he said, you sounded the most down to earth and lovely. So he rang me back. And the rest is history. We're married. <laughs> it's amazing. It's like... <laughs> It's like Tinder before Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, I love that. I yeah. love and you have three amazing children. And I suppose for all your experiences, you know, I mean, look, it's a story. It's a beautiful story of resilience. You're an amazing woman. You're amazing to share those stories because it's so important that other people know that have been through similar, that they're not alone. I think that, you know, that puts you in really good stead to be an amazing mother because what you can teach them is is priceless. Um, yeah. How old how old are, are all your kids now? So 21? 21. Adam is 21. Cahill is 15. Cloda is 14. And Faye is 9. Amazing. Yeah. And where do you live now? I'm, li I'm actually only living up the road from my old home place. Yeah. Okay. And when you when you walk those streets past your old home, what do you think now when you see your history in front of you? How incredibly sad it all was. Um, but how much I've grown as a person, I suppose, because of it. Yeah, like I see myself as having great resilience. Um, and I suppose like with this year with COVID and everything, I'm probably, and I don't mean this in a boastful way, but I'm, I'm probably stronger than most people dealing with COVID because they haven't ha had such turbulence in their life. No, I agree. When you've had to deal with a lot in the big scheme of things, staying in isn't that bad, is it? You know, yeah, like home, home is my happy place. And I suppose because my other homes weren't happy places, like this is my sanctuary this is my this is my safe space yeah 
And and I've watched your journey and I've watched you working on yourself and now you're you're helping other people. And actually I saw yesterday you popped up a really lovely meditation. So that's something that's, you know, so what are your tools that you use now to help you? Um, well, I suppose therapy is number one. And I would say to anybody and everybody out there, even if you don't have anything major going on in your life and you're just feeling fed up or whatever it is, go to somebody, talk about it. Talk, talk, talk. We need to get it out. We can't keep it all inside. We have to deal with the emotions, sit with the emotions, feel them, and then move on. We have to process all this stuff. And like, I would have been somebody who was like, no, I'm not going to therapy. No, sure. What are they going to do for me? Oh, and then when I went, like my husband pushed me and pushed me to go. Um, and I suppose I, because I was majorly triggered, that's when I did go because he saw me falling apart. And how old were you when you started, when you went to therapy? It's only a couple of years ago. See, that's mad, isn't it? Yeah, uh, about 2017. Yeah. You live- when I started to deal and process all of this. Yeah. yeah. But th- I don't think there is a right time, is it? You know, it has to be your time. Yeah. When you know, you'll feel it in your gut. Yeah. And you need to do it for you and you need to want to do it for you. Yeah. So like therapy would be my number one. It, it should be like servicing the car. Just go service your brain, you know, um, yeah. meditation, as you said there, I absolutely love meditation I know it's not for everyone but like there's so many different ways you can interpret meditation and you can you know do little things with it like I did now last night um to bring in a bit of music to read poetry something that will touch you or that will kind of calm you and you know just bring that little bit of stillness into your life um yoga is another thing I love as well um and group work like I've done I'm on my third course with Shep. Um, I'm doing a course in facilitation for group work, you know, like personal development. Yeah. I did a year of personal development as well um, with Shep. And then I did the second course with Shep, which was um, the social and community empowerment course. And now I'm doing the facilitation. So like you'd be able to facilitate group work um, and per- personal development is something I am passionate about, you know, and the sharing of people's stories and and the power we can get from it and you know group work oh my god it's it's life-changing yeah absolutely no I think it's amazing and I think you know when you look at everything you've gone through like I always say you know I, I go and watch a lot of talks and someone might be talking to me about resilience but I don't want the textbook of how to deal with it. I want to know why they're interested in it. You know, so for me, it's like hearing your story today of resilience is much more empowering to me than reading a book about how you should be resilient. Oh, yeah. You've shown me how to do it because you've done it. You've experienced what you've experienced. You've come out the other side. And, and I think, you know, I'd love to know like, you know, in the last four years, obviously, by telling your story, by going to therapy, by using the other tools that you spoke about, like, how different does that make you feel? Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I could do anything 
or I like to think I can do anything. Um, I suppose I would have always been, oh, I can't, you know, or oh, maybe I'm not good enough. Um, you know, I'm not as bright as everybody else, or, you know, I suppose because of my life before I started to do all this work on myself. And now I'm like, I can do anything I want to do. You know, it's my life. I'm the one in charge of it. And I have the power. Yeah. And if I try something and it doesn't work out, okay, fine. I'll survive. And I'll probably learn something from it and move on to the next thing. Everything is a lesson. It really is, isn't it? Yeah. And the lesson that you've given us today is is priceless. So thank you so, so much. I want to go to the jar. Your predecessors leave a couple of little um, questions. So we're going to take a couple. I always laugh at this bit. I have to show because there is a jar. <laughs> it is actually a jar. Love it. Um, so let's go. So who... Sorry, what is the one thing you can't live without? Oh, one thing I can't live without. Well, there's lots. <laughs> if, I, if I'm just to pick one, tea. Tea, really? Tea. I'm a teaaholic. I absolutely love my tea. <laughs> and we can solve the world's problems, Shan, over a cup of tea. And I don't drink tea or coffee. Oh. And I actually had to take it up once because I used to have a business partner who used to go mad that I, I didn't drink when she ordered a coffee. So I started, I drank a green tea and then I was like, is there caffeine in this? Because I don't drink any pop or anything either. Yeah. Um, and she was like, yeah, I, I was absolutely buzzing. I was like, I don't need caffeine. <laughs> I have energy going on. Thanks very much. But um this is a nice one to finish on. What sets your soul on fire? Oh, help, helping other people. Yeah, like to share my story, even though it took me oh, over 26, 27 years to share it. Yeah. But to share my story, to, to tell people the stuff I've been through, to make others feel not so alone. And just just to empower people or just help them grow as a as a person absolutely you know i think personal development and giving people tools to help themselves and and to grow as people and not to feel alone is just phenomenal yeah yeah no, it's so important. And I thank you so much for doing that. And thank you so much for joining us today. I know people will take a lot from this story. Um, you are so well, and I absolutely love it. Thank you, Marie. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me.